welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we choose a saga, explore its themes and story, and judge the actions of its characters at the Saga Thing. And this time out, we are not covering a warrior poet saga. Hooray! <laughs> are you as excited as I am? Obviously. <laughs> Well, if you mean about this episode saga, I am. But if you mean about being done with the warrior poets in general, eh, probably not. But I am ready to sink <laughs> my teeth into something different. Um, at the same time, the warrior poets saga has probably bothered you a little bit more than it did me. Yeah, that may be true. Um, fortunately, I think this episode's just the cure for all my ills. Well, uh, all your ills that can be traced to spending nearly a year on warrior poet sagas anyway. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm... <laughs> I'm not sure mere literature can solve the rest of what's wrong with you. Push the button already. <laughs> this is a story spanning five generations. Six if you count Ketter the Large, but why would you do that? Together their lives will tell the epic story of Iceland's history, from the settlement to the conversion. In the beginning, there was Kettle the Large... But like I said, he wasn't terribly important. His son, Thorstein, accepts his father's challenge to rid the district of a pesky giant hiding in the woods. With luck on his side, Thorstein wins the day and soon finds himself wedded to an earl's daughter. Their son, Ingemund, grows up to be a great Viking, a friend of King Harald Fairhair, and the progenitor of one of Iceland's greatest families. Though content to live out his days in Norway, a witch's prophecy draws Ingemund to Iceland, where he finds further fame and fortune. But how long will Ingemund's luck last after Hroleif and his cruel mother arrive? Will he have the patience to tame the wild villain and maintain the peace of the region? Or will his luck run out? Find your answer today as Saga Thing takes on... Vatnsdala Saga! The First Generations. Oh, this is going to be fun. You know, I have to admit that I've been looking forward to this one for quite a while. Yeah, it's been too long since we've done one of these epic sweeping sagas with a giant cast. And uh, a family history that spans a half a dozen generations while we're at it. Yeah, I think I think Arabidja Saga might be the last time we dealt with this kind of scope. And you might remember, uh, we had some trouble making that one make sense <laughs> for a podcast format. Yes, uh, I, I remember the nightmares. I remember the screams. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, in some ways, Vatnsdala Saga is a little easier to make sense out of, since instead of the three clan groups we were trying to keep straight in Erbiga, this time we're just following one family's story, uh, all the way from the mid-9th century, through the Icelandic conversion, and into the early 11th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big family, though. Mm-hmm. But all we need to do, if I understand this correctly, is tell the story of each generation in succession. And that's a pretty good plan, right? Yeah, well, it's true that the streamlined nature of the saga is one of its most notable features. Uh, so I think that's going to work for mm-hmm. us. Um, it's really hyper-focused on one family's exploits throughout the saga age. In fact, uh, Vestin Olsson claims that there are only four fully-fledged family sagas, and Vatnsdala is one of them. Only four? No, yeah. I think he's being a little bit picky, right? Uh, which other <laughs> ones qualify? I- I'm assuming, like, Laxdala is on that list. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, Laxdala is on there. Okay. Uh, the other two are Losvetnik Saga and Ail Saga. All the ones we haven't covered on this podcast yet. Right. <laughs> so so Olison isn't saying that these sagas are necessarily easier or less complex than the others, just that they're more centered on uh, single family's experiences over a long period of time. Right, right. So um, a lot of how people react to this one comes down to how they interpret the story of this one family. Right. So a lot of people tend to read it as being essentially repetitive. Good guys win because their luck is stronger than their enemy's luck. Mm-hmm, sure. Now, not everyone agrees with that point of view, though. Uh, Richard mm-hmm. Harris, for example, argues that a flawed thread does seem to run through the luck of the Vatans dollars. Uh, specifically, he suggests that there's a curse on one name in the family and that the overall portrait mm-hmm. of the family isn't as simple as many people might think it is. Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, but the upshot is that this saga is pretty unabashedly on the side of the Vatnsdale family. Or at least interested in them to the exclusion of many other digressions that characterize most sagas. Right. Um, it's still complicated, though. Partly because of the repeated names um, and the large number of sporting figures, mm-hmm. of course. It's definitely manageable, but there's no shame in getting out your scrap paper if you need help keeping track of the family over the course of six generations. Uh, but let's not give the wrong impression. There's a lot more going on here than just a family history, even if it is an awesome family. We get an entirely new perspective on Harold Fairhair's conquest of Norway, a handful of great battle scenes, multiple berserkers, 
a legendary mm-hmm. sword, and a saga that's probably one of the nexus texts for all Icelandic sagas. Wow, you're really building this up. It's a pretty important and I think impressive saga. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And and we've decided that uh, we really need to dig into this one. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be putting together two episodes dealing with the saga itself in addition to the mm-hmm. Judgment episode. Mm-hmm. I see. I knew this was coming. <laughs> it was only a matter of time before we expanded into three-part episodes. Well, I don't think we'll be doing this for too many of the sagas. You said that about the two-parters, right? So, <laughs> Granted, yeah. granted, yes. Um, but no, there are two oarsmen in this boat, my friend. Uh, don't deny there's plenty you want to say about this saga, too. That's true. I do. Uh, the fact is that Vatnsdala really is an important text for making sense of how a lot of the different sagas might fit together. And just mm-hmm. looking at the sagas we've already covered on Saga Thing, we can easily find connections to Erbigya Saga, Gizli Saga, Henthorer Saga, and nearly all the warrior poet sagas. Right. Uh, but we're not just looking at links to the rest of the saga world. Uh, Vatnsdala Saga has a lot of thematic and structural elements that make it well worth a read on its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, it's got quite a respectable amount of blood being splashed around. Okay, but not everyone agrees that Vatnsdala Saga is a work of art. Uh, for example, our buddy Jonas Christensen says mm. that although the successive generations give the author a serviceable narrative thread, the construction is rather loose and the work falls into a series of tenuously linked sections. Tenuously linked? Jeez. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, on the one hand, that's a little hard to argue with since we've already said we're going to break the narrative into sections based on the generations. Yeah. Uh, so he's got a point there. But I'm still, I'm not sure that loosely constructed is a fair criticism. I mean, the generations may be separate, but the author goes out of his way to create overlap by foreshadowing future problems for the family. True. And like any good saga writer, he adds an occasional genealogical aside to keep us apprised of families whose fates will intersect with those of the Vatensdahl family at various points in the story. Right. If anything, the more frequent criticism is that Vatensdahl is kind of overly structured and a simplistic story in many ways. Um, to take an example, Theodore Anderson says that the narrative suffers from a facile opposition of generalized virtue and generalized villainy. Mm-hmm. It underscores the fa- unfailing successes of the Vatensdal chieftains by pitting them against manifest villains rather than honorable antagonists. Well, there may actually be merit to that. Um, but he's also perhaps underselling some of those manifest villains. We've <laughs> got contortionist witches here. We've mm-hmm. got sorcerers with giant magical cats. Outlaw mm. bands building militia compounds. I mean, we've got a, a quite a smorgasbord of uh, bad guys. <laughs> okay, I agree with you on that. But, I mean, Dick Tracy had colorful bad guys to fight, too. It doesn't mean they're well-drawn. Wow, a Dick Tracy reference. <laughs> you are so old. Oh, sh- <laughs> shut up, whippersnapper. Every, every episode we find out just how old you are. <laughs> All right, are we ready to get to work? It's the cats and jammer kids that really floated my boat. Let's get to work. All right. Uh, hold your horses there. Mm. I, do, I do need to add that Vatanzala Saga measures up to a very respectable uh, 29,307 words uh-huh. or 3.21 Kell Sagas. You know what? That is actually useful information for once. This is the longest <laughs> one we've done in a while. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> uh, yeah. Good no. In, in fact, it's the second longest saga we've tackled so far. Uh, Arabigus Saga is still the heavyweight champ at 4.3 Hravenkels. Now, speaking of Hravenkels, I wonder if you mm-hmm. saw the post on our Facebook page, Saga Thing Podcast, if you're looking for it. Uh, uh, yes, yes. All about your precious Hravenkels. I did, actually. Okay. Well, now, I haven't corroborated the claims, <laughs> but I very much enjoyed the list of great novels measured in Hravenkels. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I thought I'd, I'd quiz you <laughs> and see if you remember these. How many Hravenkels okay. would you guess make up uh, a novel like Moby Dick? Okay, see now, my guess would be that that's got to be at least 30. 30. Yeah, I would think yeah. that's fair. It turns out it's 22.5 Hroffenkels. Really? Yes. That's a, boy, that's a, that's a slender, that's a beach read right there. <laughs> right. <It's> a, <laughs> a beached white whale read. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how about, uh, Stephen King's The Stand? Would you think that's more or less Hroffenkels than, uh, Moby Dick? Oh, that's many, many more. Yes. I, uh, I've read the entirety of The Stand in the expanded 1990 version. Okay. Uh, that's, what, 60 or so? Uh, very, very close. Good job. Uh, the stand comes in at 56.9 Hroffenkels, which is oh, there you go. pretty impressive. <laughs> That's very impressive. Anyway, all this is to say that, uh, measuring text in Hroffenkels is catching on in the world, John. Thank goodness. So there's it's a about feather time. in your cap. Well, it's a cap that already gives any good peacock a run for its money, so. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> all right. I, I, I scarcely need another feather. All right. There's a lot to cover here, so where do we start? Uh, well, there are six generations of the main family, so I thought the starting point was obvious. Mm-hmm. 
the first generation, Kettle the Large. Really? Now, why are we going to waste time on Kettle? Aside from that nickname, what has he got to offer? I mean, this saga only spends like a couple paragraphs on the guy. The story, Mm -hmm. John, kicks off with his son, Thorstein. He's the founder of the family line. What are we doing here? Well, that's fair, but we've got some groundwork to lay. Sure we uh, do. And as always, the opening paragraphs are doing a lot of heavy lifting for the exposition that we need. All right. This probably could be a quick one-part episode if you could just control your urge to talk about the minutia. Uh, <laughs> minutia is what I do. Uh, well, the very brief version is that Kettle is a retired Viking and a prominent farmer in Romsdal in Norway. Okay. He's the son of Orm Brokenshell, who is the son of Horsebjorn who was the son of Giant Bjorn. All right. See, that explains it. You just wanted to rattle off a list of awesome nicknames for the saga, don't you? Oh, Lord, yes. <laughs> uh, we ain't seen nothing yet. Um, anyway, uh, Kettle is married to Mjol, the daughter of An Bowbender. Okay. Uh, yeah. And they have one son named Thorstein. Now, An Bowbender, there's a name worth mm-hmm. knowing. He's got uh, He's got his own saga, right? Oh, yes, he does. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it falls outside of our current project, since On Saga is more of a folkloric story. It's uh, it's actually one of the 50-some-odd from Alder Saga, which are mostly about legendary figures who predate the major Icelandic saga era. On uh, Saga is interesting for a number of reasons. I, I think it's worth a read, uh, not least of which is that it's actually a pretty close parallel of some of the English outlaw legends that predate Robin Hood. Oh. Hereward the Wake, Fook Fitzwarren, mm. those guys. Hereward. You know, I uh, I just mm-hmm. taught Hereward the Wake for the first time, like uh, a couple weeks. Oh yeah, ago. how'd that go? Went really well. Uh, I used it mm-hmm. to explore ten- the the kind of like the developing tensions between the Normans and Anglo Saxons in post conquest England. Uh, I actually thought it read a lot like a saga, which surprised me, uh, mm-hmm. minus the yeah, genealogical info. Obviously, um, it made me want to teach a whole semester of outlaw literature. Mm-hmm. Didn't you? You you taught a semester of that, didn't you? Yeah, a couple of times, actually. Uh, I'm still fine-tuning the course, but it's it's a lot of fun to spend a semester among the bad guys. Yeah. Or, well, it depends. Uh, the Icelandic outlaws well, aren't always bad guys, are they? Well, no, they, they aren't bad guys in English literature either, no. but, they, you know, they're ostensibly the bad guys. Right. No, not that I want to continue this digression into On Bowbender any further, but the mm-hmm. connections aren't just limited to the older legends that we're talking about. There are also supposed to be right. some pretty compelling connections uh, between On and the guest of Robin Hood. Uh, yeah, there's actually, there's been a long-standing effort among scholars to pin down the links there. Uh, but most recently, uh, Sean Hughes has completed a survey of the various arguments. And he concluded that while there's not enough evidence to support a direct influence, mm-hmm. there may well have been some points of contact between the two traditions. Hmm. Now think, but yeah, it's not a, not an exciting conclusion. Thinking, thinking about it from our angle, it's, it does have a lot in common with the outlaw sagas we're going to be covering or that we've already covered. Mm-hmm. From the sagas, like uh, Gisli Saga, which we did, uh, Gretchen Saga, which we'll do, Horde. Uh, I mean, the line between the folkloric sagas and the ones that pass as more historical can be pretty thin sometimes, which I think is oh, interesting sure. to look at. Yeah, yeah. Um, in Vatnsdala, for example, we're, we're interested in An's descendants, even though we're not too sure about An's own story as history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's get back to the action. Okay. Um, so... Kettle's already getting old when our saga starts, and so he can't protect his community when someone or something starts killing travelers on the road out of Romsdal. Yeah. Uh, so, like many old men before him in the sagas, he shames his son Thorstein into doing something about it, even though, as he says, Thorstein isn't big or strong enough to accomplish much anyway. Oh, burn. <laughs> so, do we have anything else to say about Kettle Large? Is that about it? Uh, well, he's not in the saga for a terribly long well, time. Just a couple paragraphs. He do- well, right, but he does get this solid, cranky old man monologue about how his son's generation isn't worth much. Mm, yeah. Uh, the problem is that everyone in the district is complaining about Kettle's failure to deal with whoever or whatever is killing people on the road. And Kettle needs to convince his son to take charge and figure out what's happening. Oh, that's right. We get these sometimes. If, way back mm-hmm. when we did Hrofenkel's saga, for example, we had Thorbjörn uh, scolding his nephew Salm for his lily-livered generation. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know how seriously we're meant to take these things as social commentary. Uh, they, they serve a similar purpose to the demeaning insults that women level against men in the sagas to goad them into action. And it strikes the same chord of questioning the manliness of a person being insulted through questioning their desire or capacity to act. Kettle mm-hmm. even says to his son, you have been blessed with little in the way of strength and size. It's more than likely that your deeds will follow suit. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. He goes on like that for quite a while. It's it's fun uh-huh. to, to read with students. Um, and when he's done, his son says, if ever provocation worked, this would be provocation enough. 
It's a little <laughs> on the nose, but the point is clear. Kettle's son, Thorstein's reputation, is on the line as much as Kettle's is. See, now that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to read this kind of thing as having a tinge of the nostalgic impulse about it as well, oh, yeah. which would suggest a bit of social commentary. Mm-hmm. Right? The age of great heroes, when a man would think nothing of going off into the woods with an axe on his shoulder, doing a bit of thief slaughtering and making it home in time for dinner. <laughs> that age has always seemed to have been just a little while ago. Well, and that's something of an overarching theme for the entire corpus of the sagas. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, the saga age itself is, I would say, a kind of nostalgic creation of a later era. Mm. Right? But but then even within that creation, there are moments of wistfulness about lost and better pasts. Okay. But we're reading a lot into what is essentially a speech about what's wrong with kids today. <laughs> oh, that's nothing. <laughs> if you really want me to start reaching, I could point out that this story begins with an elderly man of great but fading reputation Uh-oh. who is unable to stop an unknown monster's depredations Monster. of his people. Hang on a second. And, and the old man has to rely on a younger warrior who oh. lacks a heroic reputation, is challenged regarding his abilities, mm-hmm. and then takes on the task of killing the monster single-handedly. Are you done? Come on. <laughs> You're trying to say this saga is connected to Beowulf in some way? Oh, oh, no, 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 not at all. Uh, not in the sense of a literary influence. I'm just noting the parallels. Okay. There are some pretty common motifs, generally speaking, uh, in these texts, right? And plenty of Germanic stories have a similar shape. Yeah, I would say it's a very folkloric yeah. formula. I'm just saying that if this sounds at all familiar to people, it's probably because we're getting into some pretty universal story elements yeah. here. <laughs> uh, that's it. We're just, uh, what are we doing? We're, we, I guess we move on to the next generation. We're done with Kettle. <laughs> Kind of anticlimactic, John. <laughs> Sorry. That was a whole section of nonsense. What <laughs> fun nonsense. All right. What's next? Generation 2. Thorstein Kettleson. Well, it's about time because Thorstein right. is much more interesting than his father was. Uh, Sure. Yeah, he is. Uh, but he's also the reason that it makes sense to consider this saga as a series of generations, because I would say his story doesn't really fit alongside the others. Hmm. It's it's really like something out of a slightly weird folktale. Oh, I definitely think that's the case. Thorstein sets out to learn what's been happening to the Vanishing Travelers, which is pretty close to the plot of about half of Grimm's fairy tales. He finds <laughs> a hall in the woods with an extra large bed inside, and he hides mm-hmm. himself before the gigantic man who lives there comes home that evening. Wait, wait, wait. Now, now, what do we mean when we say gigantic here? We have to be very careful with this. Mm. Are we talking about a big guy, a really big guy, or a fee-fi-fo-fum kind of guy? You know, that's kind of tough to work out. We, we're told that this man, whose name is Yokel, is larger than Thorstein's father, and he is a mountain of a man. Right. But, I mean, that's more or less a play on the name Yokel, which means glacier or ice mountain. Mm-hmm. So, I wouldn't want to try to size the man's pants based on that. <laughs> Well, he's definitely shopping at Bjorn's big and tall men's shop, uh, <laughs> but he's human, or at least mostly human, since we meet his parents later. Yeah, and it does seem, though, like he might have some giant or troll blood. Uh, now, that's going to be important later, and it does fit nicely with other sagas. Um, and in fact, as we mentioned, Thorstein himself is a descendant of On Bowbender, who is a descendant of a man called Holbjorn Hol- Half-Troll. Oh, see? There's blood in there. Yeah, see? Uh, but the point is, Yokel acts like a giant from a fairy tale. True. He lives in an oversized house. He single-handedly attacks and kills entire parties of travelers. He even does a version of the fee-fi-fo-fum thing you mentioned when he realized that his mm-hmm. fire has been stirred by someone else. But like the giant in uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, he can't find Thorstein, and he eventually goes to bed. And this is where this story takes a saga turn, because instead of trying to sneak off with the magic beans or golden egg-laying goose... Thorstein goes ahead and stabs the giant through the chest, pinning him to the bed. Very nice. Yeah. You have to appreciate that. We haven't had one of these in a while. No. Well, Thorstein's pretty pleased with himself. He, he maybe stops a little too long to admire his work. Um, well. Turns out Yokel's not quite dead yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he reaches out and bear hugs Thorstein into the bed with him. Oops. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> now, now, normally, this would ordinarily be the end of the story, mm-hmm. right? You just crush him to death. It's a short saga. But Yokel turns out to be a noble-hearted murderous half-giant, <laughs> uh, which I guess is a thing. Yeah. Fortunately for Thorstein. Uh, Yokel mm-hmm. tells him to take his gold and go to Gotland, where uh, Yokel's father, Ingmund, is an earl. 
Yokel asked Thorstein to carry a message to his parents and to ask for Yokel's sister Thordis's hand in marriage. He also asks <laughs> that the name Yokel be used again in the family, so so that his legacy might live on. I, I have to say, he's taking be he's taking being stabbed through the chest remarkably oh, yeah. well. Uh, I feel like I might be a little more annoyed about that. Oh, I would too. Uh, asking Thorstein to marry his sister seems like excessively good manners. Uh, well, I mean, Thor- Yokel does seem to have a self-hating streak. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get the impression that he's offering his place in the family to Thorstein to atone for his life of crime. Well, he does suggest as much in his death speech, so uh, I mm-hmm. say we forgive the big lug his trespasses, as he's forgiven <laughs> Thorstein his trespasses against him. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So I can't, uh, I can't reference Beowulf, but you can, you can drag in the Paternoster. I think it's appropriate. <laughs> Especially for this saga. Anyway, Thorstein agrees to the terms, which isn't surprising given that the alternative is being crushed to death by a giant. Uh, Yokel then dies, and Thorstein returns to Romsdal as a hero. Right, but he can't stay long, right? Because he's got now to, now he's got to go to Gotland right. and make his peace with Yokel's family. Right, he's a man of his word, and remarkably, he's able to convince first Yokel's mother and then his father not to kill him. And they even consider Yokel's recommendation that Thorstein marry their daughter Thordis. Yeah, now this is another one of those folktale moments. Either Thorstein's got the world's greatest silver tongue, or Yokel's parents just aren't that upset by their son's death. <laughs> Hi, I killed your son, but he was cool with it. Um, okay, well, I, I guess these things kind of happen. Uh, hey, uh, can I marry your daughter? Your your son said I could, you know, <laughs> while he was dying after I killed him. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, all, all right, yes, that all checks out. Thordis, Thordis, come meet your new beau. <laughs> It does It does sort of strain credulity. Uh-huh. Uh, we have to accept, I think, that yeah. this part of the story is meant to feel like events are being shaped by fate. Thorstein yeah, and yeah. Thordis are meant to form a family, and their descendants are going to be favored by fate most of the time. Yeah, no, I think you're probably right. Um, certainly, his family enjoys more than their share of good luck. Ah, uh, luck. Now, that's one of the major themes of this saga, isn't it? Yes, uh, we'll be talking more about that soon. Good. Well, Thorstein is certainly lucky because Earl Ingemund agrees to the marriage and Thorstein and Thordis do marry. Soon after the wedding, Kettle the Large and Earl Ingemund both die and Thorstein returns to Romsdal once more, this time as the inheritor of his father's estate. Uh, now, everyone involved agrees that it would be a bad idea for Thorstein to stick around in Gotland since a lot of people there aren't too fond of him for some reason. Now, wait a minute. Uh, Yokel did prophesy that Thorstein wouldn't be welcome after Ingemund's death, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. It might also have something to do with the fact that he killed the Earl's son, married his daughter, and stepped to the front of the line of potential heirs <laughs> for the earldom ahead of a crowd of ambitious and greedy kinsmen who wanted it for themselves. Well, that might make things a bit messy, A little bit. Yes. But that speaks to Yokel's foresight. I mean, he may be mm-hmm. a villainous outlaw giant, but he's got a pretty good head on his shoulders. Had. He's he's dead. <laughs> that, that's right. He's dead. Sorry. Uh, so rather than get involved in a land war in Gotland. Or go in against a Gotlander when death is on the line. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, we will eventually run through the entire Princess Bride before this podcast series is done. Yeah, that's a noble goal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not really sure that fit in well there, but uh, I hope it didn't feel too forced. No, no. Perfectly natural. Uh now, as I was saying, uh, Thorstein wisely leaves Gotland in a hurry and returns home to take over his father's estate. And he's also got a massive dowry, uh, which her father gave them in lieu of the earldom. Right. But plenty of ready cash, which makes a nice little start for Thorstein and his family. That's right. And speaking of the family... Generation 3, Ingemann Thorstenson. Wow, this is going really quickly. Uh, I was expecting us to get bogged down right away, but this is rolling along nicely. You know, we did pause for a while over On Bowbender and Harrowed the Wake and a couple other things. Uh, neither of those wow. two guys are even in this saga, so I, I doubt our quick pace will last. Well, I would say you've done as much digressing here, if not more, than I did. Hey, now, like you said, there are two oarsmen on this ship. <laughs> uh, so let's get on to Ingemund, the son of Thorstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, his story is a bit more developed, and... He and his sons are really the centerpiece of the saga. Uh, okay, so, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. First of all, why is this guy named Ingemund? Well, that's his maternal grandfather's name. No, I, no, I know. But didn't Thorstein promise to name his son after Yokel? Well, apparently he doesn't think so. All Yokel said was to keep the <laughs> name alive in the family. Thorstein doesn't uh-huh. seem to think that means he has to name his son after the half-giant uncle that he killed. <laughs> well, I think, I think Yokel thought that was the deal, but okay. Well, actually, Yokel says... And if you 
All your boys are blessed with sons. Do not allow my name to die out. Is that so, your... Oh, he's a giant. Your giant voice? That's the best. I mean, that's my best giant voice. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a big guy, so uh-huh. I tried to force it. Anyway, technically, Thorstein's keeping his word here. Uh, yeah, but he, I mean, well, I mean, he's gambling that his son will keep his word for him. Right. right? And that his son will live long enough to have his own sons. That's likely. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm just pointing out that Thorstein is within his rights to name the kid after his father-in-law, and I think that's something that uh, Yokel would appreciate. Okay. Uh, fair enough. So, let's talk about England. Now, you were just saying that this family has more than its fair share of luck. And I think at this point, it becomes obvious that we're looking at an idealized saga family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ingemund is described as a brave man in action and a good sort, trusty and tough with a weapon, loyal and kind, staunch with his friends. He was the sort of man that the greatest chieftains of old must have been. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty stellar introduction, I have mm-hmm. to say. Uh, it's, it's safe to say that the family sagas in general are colored by a kind of nostalgia for the early Icelandic era, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, and that's true even when people are being hacked to bits or ruined by corrupt legal judgments, right? There's this sense of freedom and expansiveness to the great personalities of the age that must have, I think, struck a kind of wistful, thrilling note for the later medieval Icelanders. Sure, but there's a critique there as well, often. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, sometimes I like to think of it as very similar, uh, a very similar imaginative place uh, that the Wild West stories of, like, Wyatt Earp and Billy the Kid hold for Americans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, early Iceland, it's a place where a code of behavior and a quick draw are matters of life and death. Uh, like, a man's honor is everything. Right, um, right. And, and, and good and evil aren't always easily defined, right? Um, we're, we're actually going to see a bit of that even in this saga. Do we? I mean, yeah. I've always thought of Vondal Saga as a pretty black and white text, kind of like what uh, Theodore mm. M. Anderson was saying. Uh, the mm-hmm. good guys are really good, and the bad guys are really bad. And that's true for the Ingeman section, at least. Um, I, I tend to think of the saga as being rather heavy-handed in its moralizing, which is why clearly defined villains are important to the narrative. Oh, sure. I mean, if it's on the base level of the narrative, yes, but as long mm-hmm. as you don't look too closely. Oh. Right? I mean... Uh, Ingemund, as we're going to see, gets up to some underhanded dealings in his life, and Ingemund's sons are undoubtedly heroic figures, but the writer repeatedly acknowledges that they can be arrogant and a little sneaky. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we said before, the best sagas don't necessarily have good and bad people. They have people who behave in good and bad ways. Oh, that puts it rather nicely. Yeah, I thought so. Well, look, I didn't agree with you yet, I, I, but now that you say it, I guess <laughs> we, we can, can look still at, admire my phrasing. Okay. Uh, we could look at Yokel as an example of what you're talking about. He's mm-hmm. clearly behaving badly, but he's also pretty noble in the end, so I guess I'll give you a point. All right. One more feather for my cap. <laughs> All right. Well, if you're done admiring yourself, I think you're about to tell us about Ingemund. I'm never entirely done admiring myself. No. Look, I said I'd give you a point. I never said I wholly agree with you. Uh, my, my general position still holds. Mm-hmm. This is a saga author who likes to contrast idealized figures like Ingmund with immoral scoundrels like Hrolif. Oh, sure, but- yeah. Okay, okay. Um, so Ingmund is going to have a fairly typical start for a saga hero. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets fostered by his dad's friend Ingjald, who also has two sons named Grimm and Hromund. Mm-hmm. Uh, the three boys grow up as close friends, and eventually Ingmund and Grimm start a career together as Viking raiders. Now, Ingemann's early life seems like a, a happier version of Onund Ofigsen in uh, Bondamon's saga. Uh, he's a, good at pretty much everything he does, and everyone likes him, but he's got a touchy relationship with his father. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing like as bad as what we saw with Onund or with a Gunlaug Serpent Tongue. Thorstein's just a little wary of his son's high-handed personality. And that's something that seems to come from Thordis' side of the family, and I think we're going to see uh, that come up again in the bloodline. Yeah, yeah. But in general, Ingemund is so well-liked that he even strikes up a friendship with another Viking named Salmond after they fight a naval skirmish to a draw. Mm-hmm. Salmond uh, joins their partnership, and the three of them then uh, get filthy rich together through successful raiding. And that's all well and good, but there is a political change coming to Norway. Harold Fairhair, who's mm. still called Tangle Lock or Shaggy Hair, mm-hmm. um, is calling together his supporters for a battle at Harfisfjord. Yeah, now we've, we've mentioned before that a lot of the sagas use this battle as an historical touchstone, right? Mm-hmm. This is the moment when Harold sort of conquers all. And in Vatnsdala, we see the divisive nature of Harold's push to rule Norway since Salmond, um, ends his partnership with Ingemund and Grimm when they decide to support Harold. 
Now, the battle itself isn't terribly important for this saga. Ingemund and Grimm escape without a scratch, and they're rewarded mm-hmm. by Harold for their loyalty. But we still need to address something that comes up during the lead-up to the battle. What, the author making fun of Iceland? No, uh, I was going to talk about the positive spin on Harold that we see in the saga. Oh, oh yeah, okay, okay. you yeah. go ahead, but I want to get back to the Iceland stuff. All right, well, we've seen Harold treated as a successful and even generous man in the sagas before, uh, in Vingluten's saga, if you remember. We had a real sense that the writer was softening the traditional anti-Herald tone of the saga, mm-hmm. at least at the beginning. Um, this is the first one we've come across, though, where he's treated as a loyal and wise friend. Well, within reason, yeah. Well, look, he's not winning any Nobel Peace Prize, mm-hmm. um, but he does reward his friends. He shows a lack of vindictiveness to his enemies, and he gives good advice to Ingemund. And uh, when Ingemund is weighing out whether he should support Harold or fight against him, he casts Harold and his efforts to conquer Norway in a very positive light, almost as if he sees the potential value in what Harold is attempting, attempting to do for Norway by bringing it under his rule. There's a strong undercurrent of law and order through patriarchy in this saga, and I think Harold's the poster boy for it. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. And later on, I'm going to keep going. When okay. Ingemund decides to Carry move on. to Iceland... Harold even gives his blessing, which is essentially permitting him to go to the stronghold of Harold's enemies. And, mm-hmm. as if that isn't enough, a few chapters later, he gives Ingemann as much lumber as he can carry back to Iceland and throws in a gift of a super fast ship called Stigandi that suggests to me that he's a pretty good friend and a pretty good guy. No, no, it's that's true. And we shouldn't underestimate the value of that lumber to a man trying to establish himself in Iceland. Mm-hmm. Um, right, that's an important uh, thing. My, my point is that Harold is still acknowledged to be a harsh man who kills and maims his enemies in this first portrait. Well, of course he does. He's trying to consolidate a kingdom here. You don't make a Norwegian omelet, John, without breaking a few unruly land-owning eggs. <laughs> that is both unappetizing and a strained metaphor. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, and of course, best. since this is an Icelandic text, we have to look at the weight of a seemingly offhand comment about how Harold does this and... None of his friend, none of his, excuse me, none of his enemies received any compensation. Well, you know, that just speaks to the nature of kingship from the Icelandic perspective, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. But speaking of Iceland, I want to say that we have to... Oh, that's a terrible segue. Shh, this is good stuff. Okay, go ahead. Uh, This saga's got a really odd take on Iceland in its early chapters. Oh, yeah, it it definitely does. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, if you haven't had a chance to read Vatnsdala, the author works in a handful of digs at Iceland from the Norwegian perspective. Uh, several figures put forward the idea that Iceland is a paradise on Earth. Uh, when Ingemann's brother, or foster brother, Grimm, decides to move to Iceland, he says it's because Iceland is a place where livestock feed themselves during the winters. <laughs> there are fish in every river and lake. There are great forests, and men are free from the assaults of kings and criminals. Now that last part is great. It's so Icelandic to conflate the threats from kings and criminals. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Uh, and buying into that Iceland of the imaginary past, right? Almost an, an Edenic paradise uh, or an Icelandic equivalent of Robin Hood's Greenwood. Go back to the outlaw it is. That's, that's pretty typical of the sagas. But the author of Vatnsdala manages to expose a few cracks in that image. Mm-hmm. Well, for starters, we already mentioned that Ingemann eventually has to return to Norway for enough wood to build a homestead. So those great forests that Grimm mentioned, they clearly don't exist. Right, exactly. Uh, but the author goes even further and has Ingemann himself undermine Grimm's rosy idea of Iceland. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he sends Salmon there, he calls it a desolate outcrop. When a prophetess tells him that he is destined to move to Iceland, he says that he would never voluntarily settle in that wilderness. Mm-hmm. And when he finally accepts that his fate and his future is in Iceland, he makes a point of telling his friends that he's going to Iceland more because of destiny than out of any personal desire. (laughs) It's hardly the kind of thing you'd put in a brochure. Well, that depends on how much you hate tourists, I guess. (laughs) And Ingemund really does try to escape his fate of going to Iceland as best Mm. he can. He even hires three Laplanders to take a spirit quest trip to Iceland to find out whether he's really fated to move there. That is such a weird story, even for this saga. Yeah, so the quick version is that a prophetess from Lapland told Ingemund that he was destined to settle in an area of Iceland and that he'd recognized the area because of an amulet that he was given by King Harold has gone missing and it can only be found there where he'll settle. Right. Now, just so we're clear, Ingemund has never been to Iceland at this point. Mm-hmm. Right, so we're already dealing with magic uh, or a careless but well-traveled thief. Or fate. This could be fate. 
<laughs> so so Ingeman <laughs> light fingered fate stealing his amulet away. Right. Ingeman eventually starts to worry about this prophecy, and he does, of course, discover that the amulet is missing. Um, so mm. he hires three laps to send their spirits to Iceland to hunt for this lost amulet. Right. Now, they tell Ingeman to lock them in a shed for three days. Um, when they come out, they've got some very bad news for him. They sent their spirit cells. <laughs> it's not just the cleanup job that there is in the shed. Right. So they, they've spent – that's right. Where they, well, you know, it's their spirit selves. Right. They're going to be doing it. Uh, they sent their spirit selves on a long search of the island, which involves some harrowing difficulties overcoming the prophetess's magic. Uh, they eventually do find the amulet, but it kept slipping away from them and flying over the landscape all willy-nilly. Sure. <laughs> Finally, they lose track of the thing, and now they've returned to their bodies to tell Ingamund that only he can retrieve the amulet. Oh, and Ingamund has to pay them in butter and tin for their work. <laughs> I'm sorry, I think I missed all that when the LSD kicked in. No, I'm no expert, but it seems to me more like a uh, peyote trip. But <laughs> to be clear, my knowledge of peyote trips is limited to many late-night viewings of the Hollywood classic Young Guns. Ah, sure. Carrying on with our outlaws theme. Yeah. Uh, what, what's so odd about it is that it's treated so matter-of-factly. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only is it apparently general knowledge that some Laplanders can do this spiritual projection thing, but it's so reliable as a medium that oh. Ingeman treats it as the final word on his fate. That is terrible. What is? You said the laps are a reliable medium. That's a terrible <laughs> joke, John, and you won't be forgiven. Sometimes I'm just trying to amuse myself. Uh, um, it's not always about you, you know. Mm, uh, clearly. <laughs> but in any case, Ingeman seems to take what they say as gospel. Well, what's the point of hiring Laplander spirit walkers if you're not going to listen to what they say? No, fair enough. Uh, but he's clearly hoping for a different answer. Mm-hmm. He's pretty grim-faced about it when they tell him that he's doomed to uproot his family and sail there. Yeah. Not Iceland. I, I, I mean, es- yeah, exactly. No, essentially, Ingeman acts as if he's been condemned to a life sentence in a purgatorial hinterland, rather than if, as if he were looking forward to the freedom and possibility of life in Iceland. Yeah. So this is a Norwegian perspective of Iceland. Maybe. Uh, but, I mean, it's also, in some respects, a corrective to those nostalgic narratives that claim that settlement-age Iceland was a land of milk and honey. Oh, yeah. Remember that early Icelandic settler who uh, claimed that Iceland was so rich a land that butter drips from the grass? Yeah. No, I'm not even sure why that would seem like a good idea. It, it, it sounds messy. <laughs> but we, we shouldn't give people the wrong impression of Ingeman. I think mm. there's the reason... Uh, I think the reason he's so down on Iceland is that Ingeman is hesitant to leave the stability of Norwegian society, a stability provided by a strong king, Harold, who maintains order through a clearly defined and enforced law. Boy, I mean, you that's... really love the uh, the Harold stuff in this one. No. Well, you know, that's just my theory about this saga, but it's a theory worth considering. Mm-hmm. At the very least, I don't think he's really anti-Iceland, as you're suggesting. He's just rejecting the unrealistic hyperbole of the first explorers to the land. No, no, I'm not suggesting that he's – that the author is anti-Iceland, right? I think that this is just uh, Ingeman's position at this point in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Remember, he's never been to Iceland yet. Right. Um, but it also might reflect the difference between those first land grabbers, right? The people who arrived immediately after the Battle of Hofsfjord and the men who came a little later. Uh, we're told that Ingeman travels to Iceland as part of the greatest – great – greatest? <clears throat> greatest generation. Greatest generation. Um we're told that Ingeman travels to Iceland as part of the greatest emigration to Iceland. Mm-hmm. Things are already getting a bit crowded, right? So the natural resources are being tapped before he arrives. Yeah, the text gives us that impression through having so many of Ingeman's friends already in Iceland to greet him when he arrives. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's slightly, rather slow on the uptake about get to Iceland. Yeah. Uh, Grim, Hromund, Samund. It, it seems like all the accomplished men of Ingeman's generation have already been moving to Iceland, while Ingeman's just hanging out at Harold's court. Right, well, except for the ones who Ingeman brings with him. Mm-hmm. Right? A whole group of accomplished people travel to Iceland with him, including his wife Vigdis and her brother Jorund Neck who are children of Earl Thorer the Silent. And as you say, he's welcomed with open arms by his friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, his foster brother Grimm in particular is glad to see him, although he can't resist pointing out that Ingeman had said he would never set foot in Iceland. Right. Um, but yet, Ingeman's search for a place to build his homestead on the island turns into a long series of opportunities to name stuff. Oh, God, uh, Which yes. suggests un- unencumbered lands, right? Unclaimed lands. Uh, once Ingeman actually arrives, he finds unclaimed territory everywhere. Yeah, and eventually weird. settles in Vatnsdal, which is described as being exactly the sort of idyllic paradise that the saga has been trying to tell us doesn't exist. 
And just to underline that the area is all virgin territory, Ingemann is able to make himself go the of that Vatensdal region. Right. So we're really seeing that charmed life of Thorstein's descendants coming into play. Uh, and since Ingemund is an experienced ship's captain and has the gift of the king's ship Stigandi, he's able to establish a beachhead nearby in an area where no one else had previously been able to land a ship. Ingemund is turning out to be a very impressive guy. Yeah, and we're skipping over some of his exploits, uh, but it's worth saying that he's definitely Thingman material. Oh, I'd say so. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the only thing that he's really missing is a fearsome reputation in battle. Uh, but what he's got instead is a reputation for being kind of an easygoing guy who's well-liked by everyone and very friendly. Mm-hmm. Right? He doesn't even get involved in many lawsuits, which for an Icelandic Gothi is like not breathing much air. Well, actually, he, he is very good in battle because he was a Viking with Grimm and they and Seymund. They went around and mm-hmm. were quite successful. Um, he's also not entirely free of scandal. Um, there's this matter of how he swindles a Norwegian ship's captain out of the sword Atartangi. Right, exactly. Now, I'm not fitting him out for angel's wings just yet. Uh, but we have to say that by saga standards, he's a remarkably decent guy. Oh, yeah. But if you want to be the one to blacken his name, then go ahead and explain. It, it's pretty straightforward. There's a skipper named Hraven who spends a winter with Ingemann, but he refuses to sell this beautifully made sword that uh, Ingemann's been admiring. So toward the mm-hmm. end of the winter, Ingemann tricks Hraven into walking into a temple while wearing the sword. And then he immediately claims that Hraven has offended the gods, and, of course, the only way to appease them is probably to give the sword to Ingmund. Okay. <laughs> this is definitely questionable. Um, so he's claiming that it's an offense against the gods to enter the temple with a sword on. That's correct. It's not drawn. It's just on his hip. Right, right. So we're already in something of a gray area here. Um, we don't have an absolutely clear idea of the laws governing this sort of thing for the 10th century because the law codes weren't written down until much later. Uh, we can say with some certainty that Christian-era laws elsewhere forbade the entering of a church armed, although there's some ambiguity about whether that meant not carrying a weapon or just not drawing a weapon. Right, but I, I don't remember any specific laws about this in the Gragas. Uh, it, right. it may just be a cultural norm like the, the modern practice of wearing or removing your hat in a Christian church. Well, uh, we can also look at the practice of not allowing armed men into the legal disputes at the oh, Althing. that's a little better. Right. Uh, and since the Althing was a consecrated place and act- an activity, there's a possible model there for what Ingemund okay. is claiming. But there's also the idea that somehow the gods will be happier with Ingemund having a sword in the temple. <laughs> mm-hmm. We have to assume that his point is that Ingemund is the owner of the temple and therefore its guardian, but that's pretty flimsy as an argument. Overall, we're probably yeah. on safer ground saying that Ingemann succumbs to his greed and his desire for the sword. Well, it's a sword worth a bit of moral compromise, oh, yeah. I have to say. Right? The name Atertangi is uh, a compound word, like so many other Anglo-Scandinavian names. Uh, the first part, Atar, is from an old Norse word meaning family or heredity or pedigree. Uh, the second part, Tang, means hilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word tang in modern blacksmithing still refers to the, that anchoring part of the blade that goes inside the handle or stock of a weapon. That's right. It's also the uh, preferred drink of astronauts, if I remember. That's absolutely true. <laughs> Not especially relevant, but absolutely true. Okay, so the name means something like the hilt of uh, the hilt of the generations, which is just about mm. the highest compliment you can give a sword in the saga age. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. Uh, it's pretty impressive. Um, this is one of the more famous named swords of the sagas. And it actually gets passed down through the family line until it ends up with Ingemann's great-great-grandson, Gretter Asmunderson. Oh, that's right. Good call. Mm-hmm. Gretter's descended from these guys. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, we're not going to be seeing Gretter in this saga, but we will pick up that thread when we get to his story, maybe even next. Mm-hmm. Um, this really is quite a family, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and it's about to get a lot bigger, by the way. Uh, Ingemund and his wife, Vigdis, have six children together. Good for them. And Ingemund, yeah. And Ingemund has a seventh child with another woman. Well, but before we get to that. Another uh, another blackening of his moral name, by the way. I don't think so. I doubt that at all. It's it's quite common well. for a, uh, a strong man in that age to have a mistress or two. <laughs> now, before we get to that generation, we should finish up Ingemann's story. He becomes a central figure in the North, and as a Gothi, he has responsibility for helping to keep the peace, and he's quite good at that. Right, which is always a marker in the sagas for the introduction of a villain who can test the peace and the patience of the good men in the district. Right, no good peace lasts forever. Right, so enter stage left, Hralif the Tall, and his mother, Yot. 
Now, Hrolleif is a nephew of Saemund, who we mentioned earlier as the Viking pal of Ingemund. Saemund is the guy who decided to not support Harold in the battle for Norway, which is why he had to mm-hmm. leave the country. Right. Now, uh, mother and son, Hrolleif and Jot, uh, arrive in Iceland from Norway. And while we aren't told why they've come to Iceland, there's a distinct pattern of behavior from these two that suggests they didn't leave Norway on their own terms. No, and the descriptions of these two make uh, these the descriptions of these two make it abundantly clear that they're trouble from the beginning. Uh, Ljot, mm-hmm. Hrolleif's mother, is just a terrible person. The saga author says <laughs> her disposition was not much admired, and in her behavior she was a law unto herself, as was only to be expected because she had little enough in common with most ordinary good-natured folk. Right, now don't forget to mention that she's also a witch. And she's a witch. There you go. (laughs) Uh, And Hrolleif's introduction isn't much better. No, it's actually worse. Yeah. Um, So the saga says, Hrolleif was a very strong man, but misused his strength against lesser men. He was provocative and overbearing, and under his mother's influence, repaid good with bad. Mm -hmm. Now see uh, a little bit of uh, Shades of Hrofenkel there. Uh, but but like mm-hmm. I said before, and like An- Anderson says, uh, the saga author paints very clear pictures of who's good and who's bad. Yeah, in this case, absolutely uh-huh. true. Uh, now, Hrolleif comes to Simon's farmstead and basically demands a place there on account of their kinship. Simon isn't too thrilled about this. And while he acknowledges the blood connection, he notes that Hrolleif is much more like his mother's side of the family. But being a loyal kinsman, he agrees to take Hrolleif and Ljot uh, for the winter. As one might expect, uh, things do not go well. Yeah, um, as the saga says, Hrolleif is overbearing. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out uh, Salmon's son, Girmund, is a bit hot-headed. So uh, in order to avoid violence between his son and Hrolleif, uh, Salmon decides to send his troublesome kinsman to live far away on a homestead that he's established. Yeah, but as expected, things don't go a lot better over there. No, it's it's a lot like Eric the Red all over again. It is, actually, except these guys are actually less likable. Didn't we outlaw Eric? We, we did. <laughs> but he had a charming way about him. Yeah, that's true. He killed people with a certain panache. Well, Hrolleif Hrolli- is just evil. Yeah, he is evil. Hrolleif and his mother settled down, and they keep mostly to themselves. And the, the saga says that they had little interest in making friends with other people, made threats and menacing remarks, and showed a scowling face to their neighbors in all their dealings. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the part where the author describes the way people felt about them. People soon came to hate them and think that Salmon had sent a nasty piece of driftwood floating their way. <laughs> that, that is great. <laughs> and it couldn't be more accurate. It's an Iceland phrase. Yeah. All the trouble of this part of the saga is really Salmon's fault. I mean, he avoids his responsibility at every turn and keeps pushing Hrolleif mm-hmm. off onto others, and it never ends well. Yeah, now, now in this case, um, Hrolleif takes a shine to a local young lady named Hrodni, uh, the daughter of the well-respected Uni. Now, I wonder if he scowls at her when he interacts. Well, it wouldn't be a terribly effective way, way of wooing Hrodni. No. Uh, hey, hey uh, Hrodni. Yes, Hrolleif, what is it? Oh, you're pretty. Uh, thanks, Hrolleif. See you later. No, no, I like you. I want you to sit with me. Seriously? I, ca- I can't. My father wouldn't approve. Don't worry. I'll kill him. Oh, great. You're a really special fella. And scene. <laughs> oh, well done, John. Very convincing. No, oh, thank you. Thank you. Hrolleif <laughs> <laughs> asks her father, Uni, if he can have Hrodni. Um, mm. I don't think it's going to shock anyone to find out that Uni quickly rejects the match. Yeah, on account of Hrolleif being a completely evil bastard. Yeah, no, basically that's what he says, yeah. yeah. And Hrolleif doesn't uh, take this too well. He says that Uni is <laughs> acting why. unwisely and that he'll just make Hrodni his mistress, which, as he says, is plenty good enough for her. Ooh, <laughs> that is that is that did not go well. No, is, uh, no, not at it's all. A, it's a poor follow-up. That's about as bad as it could go. And, and he's pretty persistent about trying to make this happen. Hrolleif's always around trying to talk to Hrodni. Hey, uh, you want to be my mistress? Un- <laughs> <laughs> no! Go away! Uh, before too long, Uni's had enough, I think. Uh, he tries to get help from Salmon, but he's basically left to figure things out for himself. Good job, Salmon. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, Uni has a son in his prime, a young man named Odd. Fortunately? Didn't you read the saga? Don't, don't spoil it. Just play along with it. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta build tension here. All right. 
so all is sent to ambush Rolief, uh, except it doesn't go as planned. In fact, uh, Rolief is entertained by the whole thing and says, Oh, I don't think it would be a bad thing if some here, people here were to shed some blood. <laughs> and, and you said he lacked charm. Well, I'll give him that one. Yeah, it's not a bad that's, one. That's witty. So the, <laughs> the problem here is that Rolief is wearing a cloak that his mother has made impenetrable. Now, Odd tries to get around mm. this and manages to stab Rolief's foot, which isn't protected by the cloak, but it's hardly enough to damage Rolief seriously. No, I mean, he's just he's just poking the bear, really. Mm. Um, Odd even has the nerve to brag about getting a swipe in, uh, saying, Oh, the magic cloak failed to protect you just then. Right, uh, but the next line says it all. Rolief cut at Odd and gave him his death wound. It's very dry. Well. <laughs> it's almost funny the way the ambush <laughs> plays out. It's dry delivery of the Aww. death of Odd. Oh, so sad. Yeah. I mean, I can see the humor here, but, you know, it's sad for him. It is. Uh, although it's a, it's a little strange to let the villain get the laugh. I don't know. I mean, villains get laughs all the time as they build up their resume of villainy. Uh, I, I think that's what this whole section is about anyways. It's just setting up the next and far more important episode where Hroly finds a new home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because of this killing, Hroly and his mother have to forfeit their property to Uni, Odd's father, as compensation. Um, for some reason, uh, Salmond, uh, takes them both in again, but not for long. He contacts his old buddy, Ingamund, who is now the Gothi, and asks if he'll take Crawleaf into his house. Which is really asking too much of his friend. I mean, he's just taking advantage. Yeah, he is. Um, and even though Ingamund knows all about Crawleaf, he agrees to take him in and his mother oh, too. It's a horrible decision, Ingamund. You yeah. should know better. Uh, so, so Ingamund tries to help them settle down. Uh, and when that inevitably doesn't work, he finds them an isolated farmstead and tries to ignore them. But Ingemann's sons and Hrolief keep clashing anyway, and as we'll see, Ingemann's commitment to keeping the peace between them is going to have tragic consequences. Yeah, Hrolief is just a classic saga bully. I mean, he doesn't even seem to have any motivations for his behavior. He's just mm-hmm. a socially maladjusted jerk. Uh, this mm-hmm. is really where we're starting to see some of the evidence for the view that this saga's villains can be a little simplistic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the sons of Ingamund are young men now, and his second son, Yoku, in particular, is angry about the way Hraleif acts. There you go. The, the son of Ingamund is Yoku, which fulfills Thorstein's promise to Yoku mm-hmm. the giant. I, I told you this is going to work out. Indeed it does. I'm happy for the dead giant Yoku. Yeah, me too. Now, did we even introduce the sons of Ingamund, or are you saving that for the next section? No, I think we'll save them for the second half of the summary. I um, got you. Okay. Things All are right. complicated enough already. So we'll just say he has uh, sons. For now – right. So for now, we'll just say that there's five sons, and at this point in the saga, they're operating as a team under the leadership of the oldest son, Thorstein. Okay. Um, and it's really Thorstein and Yokel that are the, the, the ringleaders, right? Uh, so the sons mm-hmm. of Ingemann definitely do not like Hrolief, and things are so bad mm-hmm. that they establish rules about who can fish uh, – about – uh, so they establish rules about who can fish where and when in the district. And basically, they just don't want Hrolief anywhere near them. Which is understandable. I mean, sure, you know. Uh, but, of course, Hrolief violates the fishing agreement with the family. Uh, Jokel, uh, who is kind of the hothead of the group, rushes off to confront him and his brothers run after him. Mm-hmm. Um, they find Hrolief on the far side of a river. And although both sides shout insults back and forth... They can't throw far enough to hit each other across the water. Now, Ingemann prefers to find a peaceful resolution, of course, and so he rides out as well, despite being very old and almost blind by this time. Now, when he arrives, his sons leave so as not to disrespect the peacemaking efforts, but when Ingemann rides into the river, Hroleaf just throws a spear at him and hits him in the guts. (laughs) Poor guy. (laughs) Okay, so the sons leave their old blind father... With an enemy who's got a murderous reputation. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I imagine it's more like four of them dragging Yokel away so that he doesn't derail their father's peacekeeping efforts. But yeah, this is a problem. <laughs> and the consequences yes. are pretty awful. Ingemann manages to ride home with a spear in his gut, muttering to, muttering to himself, I am now stiff. We old men grow shaky on our feet. You have to admire an old man who can crack jokes at a time like yeah. that. Now, there's also uh, a brutal description of the sucking noise the wound makes mm-hmm. as Ingemann dismounts. Yeah. And it's at that point that we learn that the spear has gone all the way through him and is sticking out of his back. Yeah, pretty brutal. Uh, and this next part is interesting. Ingemund then sends a farm boy to Hrolief, warning him to flee as soon as possible. 
Yeah. Um, Ingerman's behavior here kind of reminds me of Vali in uh, Bandamana Saga. Um, if you remember, Vali was the man who tried to help his killer get away in order to spare his friend all the danger of seeking revenge. Mm-hmm. Right. And at the time, I said there was a nobility to Vali's peacekeeping, but you didn't seem convinced. Uh, how about this time? Is that really the reason? I, I don't think yeah. I don't think it is. Doesn't Ingeman say explicitly that he wants to honor his role as Froleaf's sponsor in the region? Uh, okay, does he? Yeah, I, I'm even going to quote him for you just to be clear. Uh, he says, "I'm no better avenged by his death, and no matter what happens later, as long as I have any say in things, it is right for me to protect the person whom I have previously agreed to help." Hmm. I think that's pretty clear. Nevertheless, he's he's acting out a pretty standard trope as the noble peacemaker. Yeah. Um, like Vali, he's willing to go unavenged in order to prevent further bloodshed. Mm-hmm. Right? And we can't sort of discount that in a culture that's as concerned with the worth of a man's life and revenge for a man's death. And that sure, kind of and certainly he's protect, uh, he'll protect his sons from the danger of that feud. Exactly. Right. Well, that's right. very so forward is, I mean, he's he's... Right, he's he's nobly sort of foregoing. Right? I forgo the vengeance on my boy. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, while the while the uh, the the farm boy is off warning Hrolleif, the Ingeman the Ingemundersons return home. Uh, Thorstein, the oldest son, slips in a puddle as he walks in the door, and upon lighting a torch, realizes that he's fallen in his father's blood. Oh. Yeah, and he sees Ingeman sitting dead in his seat. With Froleaf's spear still in his belly. It's just a horrible, horrifying, heartbreaking moment. That's three H's. Mm. Well done. <laughs> the, well alliterated. The author really emphasized the impact of Ingemann's death by reporting that two of his friends, Avon the Proud and Gout, they both kill themselves when they hear the news. Very striking, weird moment in the saga. Yeah, no, we really haven't seen suicide before in the sagas. Um, I can remember reading the saga for the first time and being really shocked by mm-hmm. this scene. Uh, we get so caught up in the back and forth of feud killings and revenge in the sagas that we can kind of lose sight of the emotions that run under the surface of the narrative. It's, it's jarring to suddenly be confronted with the emotional toll that violence takes on these people. Definitely, and, and we'll certainly have more to say about those choices in our judgment episode. For now, though, uh, we'll have to leave it there with the district in shock and Ingeman's sons about to go on the war path. So this is our first saga thing cliffhanger. Or is it? Tune in next time to find out. Uh, so we'll both be attending the Medieval Studies Congress at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo next week. Um, and that's going to give us a chance to recover from our spring work, maybe record something live and in person. Uh, but then we'll be back in two weeks' time with the conclusion to Vatensdala Saga and our judgments. Now, there's already a lot of good candidates out there for most of our categories. Oh, definitely. I think this is probably one of the hardest sagas we've had yet for judging. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that'll be coming up soon. Uh, until then, you can keep up with us on our Twitter feed at SagaThingPod. Or our Facebook page, which is facebook.com uh, slash Saga Thing Podcast. Oh what else? Uh, well, we have our WordPress blog, uh, Saga Thing Podcast at WordPress.com, and our Gmail account, Saga Thing Podcast at Gmail.com. You can also go and uh, order some uh, products from us, get a Saga Thing shirt yeah. or a mug or a whatever you want from uh, Spreadshirt. Uh, I don't remember what it is. Saga Thing Podcast dot Spreadshirt. Who gives a Oh my god. Oh, so many ways to get in touch. Seriously, as a species, we need to work out a way of streamlining all our communication apparatus, preferably with an axe. Well, we'll get to work on that. Until then, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Bye for now. I assume nobody actually listens to these. Well, somebody's listening. The Kevin doesn't even listen to these. <laughs> no, well, not in her wheelhouse. Uh, what she? Oh, actually, you know what? You know what? Um, I shouldn't say that. When we were driving out to Wisconsin over Christmas break, um, when we were driving in the middle of the night so that our kids could sleep, she asked me to put on an episode because it helps put her to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So she considers our podcast a sleep aid. <laughs> 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 what a great wife.